0: 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at the, uh, we're continuing our study in the elements of worship and we're going to look at the sacraments as seals. We're continuing looking at the sacraments and today we'll spend most of our time looking at the Lord's Supper. But we're going to look at them as, we looked at them as signs, now let's look at them as seals. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 32. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the bloody and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and tell him to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now we're continuing to look at the... uh, We've got to the elements of worship, uh, the sacraments, and we we began looking at them as signs and seals. We're going to look at them as seals, and then we're going to look more in depth at the Lord's Supper. So the sacraments are not only signs, but they are seals. Paul, speaking of the Old Testament counterpart to baptism, says, and this is from Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still still uncircumcised. Now, the general idea of a seal in the Bible is the confirmation of a truth, covenant, contract, or message by a token or a physical sign. Things that were important and needed special, indisputable proof, We're given a physical sign, a physical seal, property deeds or contracts, Jeremiah 32, 10 and following, civil or religious covenants, Nehemiah 9, 38 and 10, 1, official letters or orders from the king, 1 Kings 21, 8, Esther 3, 10 to 12, and also 8, 2 and 10. And even today, seals are placed on passports and crucial documents are notarized with a seal they they put the paper in a thing and they clamp it together and it leaves a seal on the paper the physical sign is a proof guarantee or reminder of a message promise contract or covenant <clears throat> now in the new testament the focus on the term seal is on god's guarantee certification or confirmation of god's promise promises in the covenant of grace and christ's love to the church and that is the elect, the invisible church, true believers. Obviously, unbelievers are not sealed. In the sacraments, God, by sensible signs, promised to give us the benefits of the covenant of grace and further sanctify us if we trust in him and live in accordance with our faith in Christ. When we receive the sacraments, We actively assume all the obligations of Scripture that are part of salvation in the broad sense of the term. Okay, so covenants always have the Godward side and the manward side. We bind ourselves to fulfill them. We bind ourselves to be covenantally faithful. Now, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gave this ordinance a very personal character. We just read that in Corinthians, but it's also in, in Luke. Do this in remembrance of me. He wanted to have a physical sign to certify his love of us, his vicarious atonement, that is, his death in the place of his people, which demonstrates that love and establishes our communion with God and each other. Communion is an external sign of our saving union with Christ and his body, the church. We'll see it as a horizontal dimension. That certifies our participation in the covenant of grace. The sign points us to Christ's salvation and our obligation to be faithful to our communion with the triune God that our Lord established. Now the term cup, by the way, which is always in the singular in these all the accounts of the Lord's Supper, and that's going to be Matthew twenty six, twenty-seven, Mark fourteen twenty-three, Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Cup, singular, represents real wine. And let me just give you a little uh, footnote on this. The term cup, also called the fruit of the vine, in Matthew 26, 29 and Luke twenty-two, eighteen, 18. In the context of a Jewish religious ceremony, for example, the Passover, which of course will become the Lord's Supper, are Jewish liturgical expressions for real wine. Not grape juice, not water, not raisins that have been ground up and made into some kind of disgusting elixir, but real wine. This historical fact is supported by the following observations. Number one, the Lord's Supper was held in the spring of the year, everybody admits this, around seven months after the grape harvest. Now, they don't have freezers, they don't have refrigerators. And they, nobody at this time knew anything about uh, this idea of uh, where you take, like, they take milk and they heat it up and they kill all the bacteria to preserve it longer. Nobody knew about that. So, the only way for the juice to preserve and sell the juice of the grape, the fruit of the vine, was to put it through a careful process of fermentation. This process turns sugars into alcohol. Which preserved the juice from spoilage and made it highly favored, a marketable item throughout the Roman Empire. And I watched a very lengthy thing on uh, the history of wine on PBS. Uh, The Jews were known for as great winemakers, making great wine that they sold throughout the ancient world. Uh, So they weren't selling grape juice. They weren't Welch's comes in the late 1800s. The only way that Jesus could have served his disciples the fruit of the vine was to serve them real alcoholic wine. And this view is accepted by all the branches of the Christian church until the rise of legalism in the 19th century. Well, it's a combination of legalism plus pragmatism instead of biblicism. The idea that, well, you know, some people get drunk. Some people might be tempted if we serve them real wine. And then before the invention of uh, pasteurized grape juice by Welch's, in the late 1800s, uh, I forget 1860s, whenever the date was, they would actually churches were serving water instead of instead of wine because grape juice wasn't available. Uh, they didn't have freezers and refrigeration like we uh, e- either, so they had to they serve people water. And the Mormon Church, which is not a, which is a cult, still uses water today, <clears throat> and that's the result of pragmatism thinking you're wiser than God because God commanded us to use real wine. Wiser than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who commanded us to use real wine, and its pragmatism, saying, "Well, people might get drunk if we serve, we obey the if we obey God, if we obey Scripture, if we obey Jesus Christ, people might get drunk," which is complete nonsense. <clears throat> the view of certain legalists that Jesus supernaturally removed the alcohol. Some of the people in the RPCNA told me that, or that the wine was really juice made from crushed raisins. It's not only contrary to the plain meaning of the scriptures, but is totally absurd. It's, not, it's totally untenable. It's simply a grasping after straw. No reputable Christian scholar accepts such nonsense. Number two. <coughs> the Bible implies very clearly that the Holy Supper is like a wedding supper or a feast, a wedding feast. Revelation 19.9 and then, of course, look at Matthew twenty, 22, 2 and 4. Now, our Lord, we know this as a fact. It's his first recorded miracle. Created real, high-quality wine at the wedding feast in Cana at the request of his mother. Real wine. The guy tasted it. He said, wow, most people serve the good stuff first. You've saved the good stuff for last, indicating it was a high-quality wine. Grape juice is grape juice. It's not like... You wouldn't serve uh, bad grape juice and then better grape juice. That's nonsense. It was wine. That's John 2, 3 to 9. Even though the Bible strongly condemns, unequivocally condemns, drunkenness and drunkards, Romans 13, 13, 1 Corinthians 5, 11, and 6, 10, Galatians 5, 21, Ephesians 5, 18, etc. I didn't even take the time to look up the several Old Testament passages. It never teaches abstinence, except for Nazarites, who, by the way, are not allowed to have raisins or grapes or grape juice or anything related to the grape, and priests, while they're ministering in their uh, sacrificial ministrations, they're not allowed to drink, They, they have to be precise, they can't make mistakes. The real wine, that real wine and even stronger alcoholic beverages were permissible in moderation, is the explicit teaching of Scripture, Deuteronomy 29.6 and Psalm 104.15. God even tells the covenant people that they can use some of their tithe money to purchase, and here's the wine or similar drink, some translations say wine or strong drink, to celebrate and rejoice before God, Deuteronomy 14.26. So if drinking alcoholic beverages is intrinsically sinful, then God would be advocating sin, and of course that is impossible, God being absolutely holy, righteous, and just. Now the fact that God says that wine is a blessing from the earth, that makes the heart of man glad, it causes man to rejoice, in moderation, obviously, uh, Psalm 104.15, and that real wine was used for wedding feasts indicates that using grape juice misses some of the biblical symbolism of real wine, which is Christ's commandment. People would be upset if you gave them grape juice at a wedding feast. Does that mean that God is, advoca- God is advocating drunkenness? And the, the answer is absolutely not. The Bible condemns drunkenness, but the Bible also teaches that it's okay to drink in moderation as long as you don't get drunk. This Bible's crystal clear. Number three. The fact that real wine, which is the plain meaning of Scripture, has been the universal practice of all branches of the Christian church since the apostolic era until around the 1850s, when legalism, unbiblical legalism, and pragmatism of the temperance movement became popular, proves that the use of grape juice is an unbiblical innovation. It's an unbiblical innovation. It is a disobedient thing. It is a rejection of the command of Christ for man's wisdom. It's the world's wisdom. It's worldly. I know it may sound crazy to you, a fundamentalist. Of course, I'm a fundamentalist, but it's actually worldly to disobey God and serve grape juice. It's worldly. It's of the world. It's not of Scripture. Unbelief leads to pragmatism, disobedience, and a rejection of the good things of God. And, of course, uh, and this is very decisive. The use of grape juice is a clear violation of the regular principle of worship. What does God tell, tell us to do? Don't add to what I tell you. Don't detract from what I tell you. Do exactly what I tell you to do. Don't depart from the right. Don't depart on the left. Stick exactly to what I say. Well, what does God say? What does Jesus say? Wine. We know it was real wine because people were getting drunk at the love feast that preceded the Lord's Supper uh, with wine. They weren't getting drunk with grape juice. And like I said, grape juice wasn't available except for about three days out of the year. The argument that using real wine is wrong because people who used to be drunkards may be tempted to stumble and fall back into drunkenness falls to the ground by the simple fact that drunkards existed in the days of Jesus. And of course, there were ex-drunkards, people who had repented and become Christians in the Christian church, Yet he required the use of wine, real wine. Are the legalists among us wiser and more compassionate than the Son of God? And, And of course, perish the thought! It's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. The sacrament, the sacramental wine, represents Christ's bloody sacrifice, and thus is a visible confirmation of the covenant. Jesus' death was necessary to ratify the covenant, <clears throat> the new covenant, and fulfill the judicial foundation of the covenant of grace. And this is what Jesus said, Luke twenty-two twenty: this cup, and of course that's a symbol for wine in the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Now the language used, the blood of the covenant is an allusion to Exodus 24.8 where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the covenant people to ratify the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant is new in reference to the old. The old covenant was ratified by the blood of clean, spotless animals that typified the Messiah to come. The new covenant is far superior for the reality replaces the shadow. The once for all perfect, sufficient sacrifice of Christ secures all the blessings of the new covenant. And Hebrews 10, 9 to 18, another passage within Hebrews makes that very clear. The author of Hebrews says, look, if the blood of animals could forget sins, uh, you know, you really wouldn't need Jesus, but they didn't, they, they didn't, really forgive sin, they just point it to what does forgive sin. So once that all-sufficient, perfect sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice of Christ comes, obviously the shadow is done away. So the wine represents the new covenant which is ratified by Jesus' sacrificial blood. In communion, the benefits of the once-and-for-all sacrifice of God's Son are signified sealed and applied to believers. The Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.20, also called the Table of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 10.21, which the First Fathers called Communion from 1 Corinthians 10.16, and the Eucharist from the word Thanks, 1 Corinthians 11.24, Luke 22.19, eulogizas, or eucharistesis, where they get the word Eucharist, the Romanist, given at the Supper has a number of important aspects. So let's look at the sacrament, very important sacrament. First, there's the breaking of the bread, artos, and the giving of thanks, Luke 22, 19, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, 24, or the blessing, Matthew 26, 26, Mark 14, 22. Now, Thanksgiving is normally given for food before a meal. <clears throat> but this Thanksgiving is much broader and includes blessing God for the all-sufficient su- all sacrifice of his Son, Jesus Christ. In Reformed liturgies, this Thanksgiving includes a prayer for the consecration of the elements used on this occasion. Okay, We hereby set apart from a common to a sacramental use the bread and the wine that shall be used on this occasion, to paraphrase. The bread and wine are set apart for a sacramental use. The bread used by our Lord would have been, of course, thin, unyeasted wheat bread, which was easily broken into pieces. They still make that today. And it's actually quite delicious. Um, You you take wheat bread, you you make it very thin, Uh, it would be cooked on a stone with fire or coals, and it would be quite delicious. The breaking of the bread, which is noted in all four accounts is part of the visible lesson of the sacrament and must always be included. And then second, there are the sacramental actions with explanations. The bread is broken in front of the congregation as the pastor quotes Jesus who said, Take, eat, this is my body. Matthew 26, 26, Mark uh, uh, 14, 26. Luke twenty-two nineteen 19, and uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, 24, which is given for you, Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19. The verb is, in the context, means it signifies my body. For Christ was still seated in front of his apostles. The Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, that the bread becomes the literal, real body of Jesus carnal, corporal, fleshly body of Jesus and the wine becomes the real, actual blood of Jesus, is uh, totally unscriptural and uh, essentially pagan. He was sitting there. It couldn't become his body and blood unless we give omniscient qualities to his body and blood and then you deny the humanity of Christ. It also contradicts the Lutheran consubstantiation view where the elements, the actual physical elements, are in, with, and under the bread and the wine, which also contradicts the true humanity of Christ and is a heresy. It's false. Luther was grasping at straw. The bread is a symbol of Jesus' body, Soma, and the breaking of the bread symbolizes our Lord's suffering on the cross as a vicarious sacrifice. The bread would then be passed around the table and each communicant member in good standing would break off a piece The sacramental wine in the cup signifies that Jesus' blood was separated from his body by sacrifice. It was not a regular death. He didn't die as a, uh, a martyr, he didn't die as a, a good example. He died as an atoning sacrifice to wash away our sin and guilt by his blood. As our Lord passed the cup, he said, This is my blood of the covenant which is shed for many. Mark fourteen twenty four. Unto the remission of sins, Matthew twenty six twenty eight. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Luke twenty two twenty and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. This passage, which alludes to Exodus twenty four eight, as I've noted, and also pro- possibly Isaiah fifty three twelve, indicates that Christ's shed blood, inaugurates, ratifies, and secures all the salvific blessings of the new covenant. The reality has come. The shadow is no more. True salvation has come. And that's what we celebrate. And that's what we remember. Jesus' statement. Drink from it, all of you. Matthew 26-27, together with Mark's comment, they all drank from it. Mark 14-23. And the fact that one cup, uh, the cup, singular, Matthew 26-27, Mark 14-23, 1 Corinthians 11:25 or this cup, Luke 22.20 and 1 Corinthians 11.26, is passed to the disciples, indicates that the use of one cup per table is not circumstantial, but is required by our Lord's command and example. And the use of one cup with a real table, but people sat around a table, if there was a large church, they would set up many tables, often outside, Uh, when the weather was pretty good, and they would sit around tables and they'd have a cup on each table, uh, was the practice of all Presbyterian churches until the anti-wine legalism of the 19th century became popular. The importance of the sacramental action is noted by George Gillespie. In other words, the use of the cup, or this cup, singular, is not accidental. And it's recorded in four different accounts. George Gillespie says, and I've, what I've, I've tried to modernize the English here in some of the grammar, that it is not indifferent, or that is mean circumstantial, for a minister to give the sacramental elements of bread and wine out of his own hand to be shared by each communicant, for as much as our Lord commanded his apostles to divide the cup among them, that is, to reach, that is, pass it one to another, Luke twenty-two seventeen. Some of the interpreters are of the opinion that the cup spoken of by the evangelists in that place is not the same where he speaks of in verse 20, but they, are, that, but they are greatly mistaken. For verse 18 makes it clear that Jesus no longer had a cup of wine. Thus we conclude that when Christ commanded the apostles to divide the cup among them, the meaning of the words can mean nothing other than this, that they should give the cup one to another, which is so plain that a Jesuit also makes it follow upon this command. And that's from A Dispute Against English Pope of Ceremonies, uh, 1637, Part 4, 22. And like I said, I've modernized the spelling and the grammar a little bit, uh, because Gillespie's, in the original, is quite difficult. And so am I saying we should return to this because it's a wonderful Presbyterian tradition? No, I'm not. I'm saying we should return to this because that's what Christ did, and that's what the apostles did, and that's what Paul did, and that's what the church at Corinth did, and that's what we are commanded to do. Therefore, we should obey Scripture and do it, even if you don't like sharing the cup. Now, the Scottish church is what they would do. They would have a silver chalice or something coated with silver, which is antibacterial. I don't know if they knew that. And then they would use very strong wine, which, of course, killed bacteria as well and then you have a napkin, and as you pass it, you have a large cup, and you spin the cup. It may be gross to Americans. You may think it's gross, but that's what Jesus did, and that's what the apostles did, and that's what we are commanded to do. So if you don't like it, that's just too bad. We have to do it. There's a symbolism there. The cup. This cup. Singular. There's one Christ who shed his blood for the, the church. In the Jewish Paschal Tradition, The head of each family would break off a piece of uh, bread for the children, old enough to discern, understand, and answer questions about salvation. Exodus 12, 26-27. And of course, I'm looking at Exodus 12 in light of the law, which is clear. The account of the Passover in Exodus is not very clear. Uh, It's a family thing. But when you get to the law, it's quite clear that it was for men and children who had come of a certain age and understood what was going on. We'll look at that in a moment, probably this afternoon. And then third... Oh, and I have one more thing to say. The bread and wine are to be placed on a table, not a supposed altar, and they're not to be put up on top of a stage where the pastor performs a show for the congregation. They're to be placed on tables with Christians, the members, uh, sitting around the tables with their families, sitting around tables with real cup, a real cup and real bread. Very important. And then third, Jesus commands us, do this, poietia, a present active imperative, indicating that the sacrament is to be continually and perpetually celebrated by the Church of the New Covenant era. We're to keep doing this at least until the second coming of Christ. Quite clear. It's perpetual. And it replaces all the Old Testament uh, bloody feasts, and so forth. It's the New Covenant ordinance, with that and, and, of course, baptism, which we'll look at later, Lord willing, next week. We are to focus our minds and remember who he is and what he has accomplished. Do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> Luke 22, 19, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. This statement is usually made by the pastor either during or after the bread is distributed. One of the main purposes of the Supper is to remember and meditate on what the Savior has done on our behalf. What did he do? He did it for us. We're remembering it. We're meditating on it. We're celebrating it. It's our salvation. We focus our faith on Jesus' shed blood and suffering on Calvary, which expiated our sins and propitiated the wrath of God against us. God's wrath is removed Having been reconciled to God and adopted into his own family by Christ, we now eat at his table. The symbolism is rich. You have family symbolism. You have a wedding celebration symbolism as well. The bread points us to Christ's covenant sacrifice. The wine poured out points to the covenant sealed. A covenant cannot be sealed without the shedding of blood. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 24, they ratified the covenant with the sprinkling of the blood of animals. But now we have the reality. The consuming of the bread and wine signifies our union and communion with Christ and his sheep. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The word communion refers to our participation in the Lord's suffering, death, and resurrection by faith. Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, we are mystically united to Jesus and his redemptive work. By faith, we commune in a special way and derive true spiritual nourishment. The Christian who has true faith has the efficacy or spiritual power of Jesus' redemptive work in mediation. Applied to his heart by the Holy Spirit. And thus what is symbolized is really received at the Holy Supper. and that's why it's a means of grace and that's why it's part of the elements of worship. Now there are other things we need to note for clarification. The Lord's Supper is not an initiatory rite like baptism. But it's a sacrament that is to be repeated over and over and over again as a means of continued sanctification. Now the Bible's not specific about frequency. It's not explicit. The Reformed churches in the early years did it yearly, semi-yearly, quarterly, and monthly. Modern conservative Reformed churches usually practice it monthly. Uh, John Calvin, by the way, favored it monthly, and it eventually became the practice in the churches at Geneva. He writes this, quote, and this is from his ecclesiastical, Calvin's Ecclesiastical Advice, a book that was published in 1991. And this is from an essay he wrote to a question about certain rights of the Church. Quote, We are very pleased that the Lord's Supper is being celebrated every month, provided that this more frequent observance does not produce carelessness. When a considerable part of the congregation stays away from communion, the Church somehow becomes fragmented. Nonetheless, we think it better for a congregation to be invited to take communion every month than only four times a year, as usually happens here. That had been their practice, and then he had been moving them toward monthly. Uh, the, t- the four times a year uh, was very common in the early days of the Reformation, and it was practice of the Presbyterian Church for many years. Nonetheless, we think it's better to take communion every month than only four times a year, as it as it usually happens here. When I first came here, the Lord's Supper was served only three times a year, and seven whole months intervened between the observance at Pentecost and at the birthday of Christ. A monthly observance pleased me. But I could not persuade the people, and it seemed better to bear with our weaknesses than to continue arguing stubbornly. I took care to have it recorded in the public records, however, that our way was wrong, so that correcting it might be easier for future generations. End of quote. (laughs) Calvin, he's portrayed by modernists and liberals as this harsh, very hard guy who, now he was uncompromising on doctrine, there's no question about that. But when it came to the Reformation of the Church, in certain areas, he was willing to go a little bit slower because he didn't want to freak the people out and have them end up leaving and going back to Rome. Now, more recently, some Presbyterian churches have been doing it weekly. Frequency should be left to the local elders to determine according to the general uh, general biblical principles. Because the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, practicing it more frequently frequently, at least monthly, I think makes sense. Now, what is the argument, very briefly, for weekly communion? And weekly communion has been popularized by theonomists, uh, James Jordan, for example. And a lot of their, uh, those guys became sacramentalists, or were sacramentalists in the closet back then, but they're sacramentalists. <clears throat> Jordan talks about the sacraments not as means of grace, but uh, he doesn't like the expression. He thinks they're channels of grace. At least he said that in his early stuff. The arguments for weekly communion are largely based on the book of Acts, where the apostolic church continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread, Acts 2.42. Now, some commentators think that the definite article, it says the bread, and the fact that the breaking of the bread appears in the sequence of teaching, fellowship, and prayers, indicate that communion always took place in public worship. Others believe these descriptions may not be public worship, but more informal gatherings where teaching prayers and fellowship meals took place. Uh, In some of those accounts in the book of Acts, they were doing it daily, so you could argue for daily communion. Uh, It's hard to tell whether they're talking about fellowship meals, love feasts, or communion. Uh, We're not sure. So there's divided opinion among scholars and commentators. In Acts 27 in 11, <clears throat> the church of trust came together on the first day of the week to break bread. And that's because Paul was going to be there and Paul was preaching. This example is almost certainly the Lord's Supper. However, since the scriptures are not crystal clear on this issue, and perhaps due to a lack of qualified ministry in the early days of the reformation, weekly communion was not adopted. The Book of Common Order of Geneva 161564 recommended a monthly celebration. Of course, that's written right around the time Calvin died. That's when it came out. And recommended a monthly celebration while the Presbyterian First Book of Discipline, 1560, recommended quarterly in towns and twice yearly in the countryside. And I think, I think you know, a lot of that was due to a shortage of pastors. It was tough. Uh, covenanters in America, the original Covenanters, before they became the modern Covenanters, which are covenant breakers, or, or the OPC or PCA with Psalters, uh, generally did it yearly, but they had they might have one minister riding long distances on a horse to serve the needs of congregations. So they did it very sparsely. The fact that the Sacramentoist exalted the Holy Supper above the preached word, a grave error, and held superstitious views about it, certainly did not help matters. I think in our day, people are reluctant to go weekly, uh, because the people, most, a lot of the people that are arguing for weekly communion are a bunch of sacramentalists, uh, the Federal Vision people, for example. The Auburn Avenue heresy, the Federal Vision heretics, because they're sacramentalists. They believe in, that it works uh, mystically, automatically, magically. <clears throat> Although they would deny that, they really do. And you could read my book on that. Now, given the spread of sacramentalist errors among modern Presbyterians, the teaching of the Federal Vision heresy which has taken over the Reformed Episcopal Church, by the way, where I attended seminary, it is understandable that most modern conservative Orthodox Presbyterians have not been willing to move to weekly communion. I don't have a problem with it at all, as long as you're anti-sacramentalist. Fourth. The coming together as a corporate body to sit together and eat the bread and drink the wine also symbolizes our unity, love, and fellowship with other believers in Christ's kingdom. It has that vertical aspect. It has that horizontal aspect. As Paul says, and this is 1 Corinthians 10.17, For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread, 1 Corinthians 10.17. We are all one body, by virtue of our union with Christ, our possession of his saving benefits, and his bestowal of the Holy Spirit on all. The Lord's Supper symbolizes and affirms what Jesus and his Spirit has always done through the Savior's redemptive work. It symbolizes salvation and its effects both individually and corporately. For these reasons, Paul requires the participants to discern the Lord's body. And the context there, the people in the local church, you know, uh, if you live in Miami, Florida, you're not going to be able to discern what's going on in upstate New York. But you certainly can discern the Lord's body where you are and make sure that you're treating each other with love and kindness and compassion and working for each other's edification. You're not gossiping and being a bunch of jerks and acting anti-Christian. If that's the way you're acting, Paul says you shouldn't take the supper. So the members of the local church are be, to be discerned prior to the receiving of the Holy Supper, and that's your attitude. And here's First Corinthians 11:28 to 29. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and, and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So to examine oneself in this context, it's not a, ge- it's a very specific statement in this context. It's not a general statement. Now, you can apply it in a general way if you, if you like. And, of course, sermons are going to do that. But here it's very specific when we talk about how to interpret it. But this context means to look carefully at whatever one, whether one is covenantally faithful and loving in their treatment and attitude toward other Christians in the local church. Other church members? are united to Christ and members of the family of God. They are people for whom Christ died and gave his spirit. To ignore this fact and treat other Christians unlawfully, which is unloving, without kindness or compassion, and, you know, things that are very common in churches, gossips accepted, slander happens, uh, shunning people who have repented of sin and holding grudges for things that happened many years ago, uh, refusing to love someone, refusing to help someone in need, uh, these things are all wicked, and they disqualify one from participating in the Lord's Supper. Yet gossip is totally accepted. And uh, I've been in three different denominations. Well, I've been in more than three denominations, but I've been at presbytery meetings. Uh, elders and ministers tend to be the biggest gossips in the world because they think that's part of their job, and that's not part of their job. <clears throat> First Corinthians eleven twenty-one to twenty-two, Leviticus nineteen eighteen, Matthew eighteen fifteen to twenty. Talk about loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor Loving your neighbor. in Leviticus means right in the context. You don't trash him behind his back. You don't gossip and say bad things about him, whether they're true or not. You go to him privately and you work it out. You protect his reputation and you work to, to help him be edified and repent and be a better Christian, a better believer, a better professing Christian. Matthew 18 is the same. He sins go to him privately obviously if he uh, commits a scandalous sin like murder or, or adultery and it's a public thing or he teaches heresy that's a different matter but private sins should be dealt with privately to do the to gossip and slander and mistreat other believers like paul describes at corinth where people were there were people that were very poor and didn't have enough food to eat they were literally without enough food to eat and other christians are stuffing their face and being gluttons in front of them and not sharing their food uh, it's an implicit denial. It's an explicit denial of the central meaning and purpose of the Holy Supper. Jesus commanded us, John 13, 34-35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for another. Now, Paul's strong warning That he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, indicates that the new covenant, like the old before it, not only has covenant blessings, but also covenantal curses for those who habitually violate and reject their covenant responsibilities. We're told by people, oh, well, those covenant those covenant blessings and curses. Now, some of that obviously applies to the land of Israel, and it doesn't apply to us in the same way. But there are covenant blessings and curses, a part of every covenant, because there's covenant and our responsibilities. If you don't keep your responsibilities and you violate the covenant, there will be covenantal judgment against you. There will be chastisements of God against you. Hebrews is very clear about that. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4, and other passages. If professing Christians cannot treat their own spiritual brothers lawfully with love, nurture, and compassion, they make a mockery of the Lord's table. Okay, if a Christian's in sin, your responsibility is not to do everything you can to trash them behind their back. That doesn't accomplish anything except divide the church and cause problems. Your responsibility is to go to them privately and work with them to get them to repent and do the right thing, obey scripture. If they don't do that, what do you do? You take another person with you as a witness. You do it again. If they tell you to jump on a lake, if they're not going to repent, then you go to the session of the church, you get the elders involved, and then if they don't repent after this third opportunity, then there's a public denunciation of their behavior and they're disciplined, usually barred from the Lord's Supper. Well, what what do Christians do today? Well, they're afraid to confront somebody to their face, so what do they do? They gossip about them behind their back. Does that help them? No. Does that help the church? No. Is that biblical? No. Does God hate it? Yes. It's condemned all over Scripture. But that's the common practice in churches today. Like the covenant ritual in Exodus 24, where the people promised obedience and were sprinkled with sacrificial blood that's Exodus 24, 6-8, to, eight, six to eight. the Lord's Supper serves as a bloodless covenant-ratifying oath sign. And I have to remind you once again, I want to remind you, that a lot of the, the stuff that happens in the New Testament, the assumption is, is that you know your Old Testament and you know what these things mean due to your study of the Old Testament. Christians who ignore the Old Testament don't understand these things. Because, repeatedly, the apostles and, of course, Jesus himself, and the, they appeal, they refer to the Old Testament all the time. And they're assuming that Old Testament world and life view. Yes, the ceremonies have been done away. The, the, the Old Testament ceremonial law. And all that's been done away. Yes, that's the assumption. But you have to understand how covenants occur and the blessings and curses by looking at the Old Testament, which goes into much more detail. It's not that hard to discern what is ceremonial and what is continuing. People want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's a great mistake. It is a bloodless, covenant-ratifying oath sign. And I really should should have put this in here. Um, I've been thinking about it. it. Paul also talks about how you're professing the Lord's death through the sacrament. Of the Holy Supper. It's, it, you're confessing it. You're professing it publicly. And that's part of that covenant oath sign. Now, just as judgment fell on Israel for their infidelity to God's covenant, Paul promises the same outcome for unfaithful professing Christians. And Paul has warnings in 1 Corinthians 10 1 to 12. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty 30 to 34, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, Hebrews 3, 12 to 19, Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. And Hebrews repeatedly, the author of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul, repeatedly looks back and says, Look, they violated the covenant here. This is what happened to them. They violated the covenant there. This is what happened to them. They violated the covenant here. This is what happened to them. Don't be like them. Don't break the covenant. Don't violate your covenant obligations. And the Holy Supper is a covenant oath sign reminding us of that. The blessings and the curses of the covenant continue in the New Covenant era. It's crystal clear. It is crystal clear. And then I think what we'll do is we'll stop there. We'll take a little break and we'll come back. And we'll talk about this. We're going to talk a little bit about to Communion because it's really growing in popularity. And uh, it's totally unscriptural. We'll look at that a little bit when we come back. But let's take a little break. I don't know if I have enough for a second, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. I might have to add some for my paper on Peta Communion. But let's take a little break. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the Holy Supper. We thank you for these means of grace. We thank you so much that we can proclaim your, Lord, your dear son's death until he comes again teach us Lord to be covenantally faithful to remember what he's done and to feed upon him by faith for he, our union with him in his life, death and resurrection is the source the foundation the efficacious, efficacious ground of our redemption in every aspect sanctification and glorification everything comes from him So we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.